that movie was so bad I couldn't finish it. Do you know how infrequently I pull the plug on movies? <laughs> like I'll watch I'll watch anything and that one I was just like, nah, can't do I'm, it. I'm pretty sure Not Marin, happening. Marin finished that and I was like, I can't be in the room as this Hello, and welcome to Did You Do Your Homework, the pop culture podcast where we usually assign homework, but honestly, at this point, we're just homesteading out on the range, taking privilege of being white people, and hoping to pick up some free land from the federal government, and then forget about the fact that that was free land from the federal government, because uh, it's uh, Western excuse Month. Excuse you. <laughs> excuse you. We still assigned homework. <laughs> we did assign homework, and in fact, what we're doing is we're taking those people who got all that land 100 years ago and bringing it to the, fo- to the, the present. We're looking at their descendants still living out on the range because it's the last episode of our Western month here on Did You Do Your Homework? Uh, And we are looking at Neo-Westerns. I am one of your co-hosts, Pete Romberg, and joining me, as always, is my fellow co-host. Martha Sullivan, eternal N7 agent and also Stardew Valley farmer. It's been a weird week for video games. (laughs) Excellent. Uh, Yeah. And like I said, we are talking about neo-Westerns today. That's, we'll get into exactly what that means, but broadly speaking, that's a Western set in the present day. Um, This is the last of our Western month of June. It's been a great month. Uh, We were joking on Twitter, but joking, not joking, about making this podcast a Western podcast, because turns out we both love Westerns. Uh, But before we get to talking about our Neo-Westerns and the homeworks that we did assign, uh, it's only fair that we share with you what is stuck in our head. That's whatever piece of pop culture we want to talk about this week. Martha, what is stuck in your head? Uh, So I just finished a book. I still read sometimes. Uh, It was an advanced reader copy of... um, an author who I quite enjoy, Grady Hendrix. I believe I have spoken about him before on this podcast. Uh, his book last year or the year before was the Southern Book Club's Guide to Slaying Vampires. Um, <laughs> I definitely and, remember that title. Yes. So he has a new one coming out this summer called The Final Girls Support Group. And I just finished reading it and it's incredible. Uh, I hope everyone goes out to read it when it is um, in general release. Uh, But basically the conceit of this book is what if movies like Friday the 13th and Halloween were based on actual like serial killer or murder incidents that happened to real people uh, and the women who these things happen to have now grown up and are attending group therapy together. Mm, Sure, sure. Uh, So that's the conceit. And then the plot is about a new question mark killer who shows up and starts picking off the final girls one by one. Mm. So Um, there theoretically would be a final, final girl. Yes. Mm. Great. Um, Uh, That that won't cause any additional trauma for that one survivor, I'm sure. Grady Hendrix is the single best male author right now writing women. Hmm. Um, he writes stories. He writes women's stories in a way that is like painfully accurate. Like a central theme of his books is always like the harm that is caused when people don't believe women and girls when they go to people for help and then how they have to like find it on their own. Hmm. 
Um, and then Final Girl Support Group is also about the way that culturally we treat women's trauma, like mm. how just the whole, um, you know, what it means to take real stories and turn them into easily consumed entertainment. Mm -hmm. And also because in our real world, like Friday the 13th is not based on a real story, but also it is still a wildly popular piece of popular culture that involves watching like young, beautiful women be brutally murdered. Right. And also um, and just punished for, you know, yeah, punished for teens. having sex, yeah. like punished for, yeah, punished for being teenagers. Um, and it just was so like, it is in and of itself a wildly entertaining thriller, but also is asking all of these very pointed questions about how we get our entertainment and what it means to, you know, leave the theater after watching these girls get killed and go about our lives when the characters in the movie, like, don't get to do that. This feels like it could be an interesting companion piece with Cabin in the Woods in a way of sort of, like, looking at and dissecting the genre in different ways. And also, like, Cabin in the Woods is so obsessed with the final girl trope. Oh, yeah. No, it's definitely... I mean, there's this, there's a, a piece of dialogue in Final Girl Support Group that I think is a very direct reference to... Mm the way that they talk about those tropes in cabin in the woods. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, it, it's great. <laughs> cool. Excellent. Um, I, uh, this is not what's stuck in my head, but when you said you finally finished a book, um, this is going to sound like bragging. It's not supposed to be. I finally passed page 1000 in war and peace, which is a book that I have been, I was, I, I began reading it three to four years ago took a long pause, picked it up again a couple months ago, and I've been making very good progress. I only have 200 more pages, but it means that my Goodreads is just shot because all I've been reading for the past, like, three months is War and Peace. And when I finally <laughs> click done on that book, I'm going to be so excited and I can literally, and then I can read anything else. Um, and, like, I'm enjoying it a lot. I'm not just, like, reading it because I'm, like, slogging through. I'm enjoying it. But it's so long... <laughs> Um, and like Lord of the Rings is the same length but there's probably twice as many words on every page in War and Peace just because of font size and all the rest of it so it just it feels so much longer um, so yeah I'm excited to finish that book hit done on my Goodreads uh, and then read literally anything else um, but what's actually and for real stuck in my head this week is that this past weekend I got a pug uh, I'm Baby. now, yeah, I'm now a pug father. Uh, he's currently asleep in the other room on the blanket. Uh, he real cute and real photogenic. And I bet some of the pictures I post of him will end up on Twitter. So, uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Pico3000. That's P-I-K-O 3000. Uh, and see some pictures of him. His name is, uh, and Martha, you already expressed your total pleasure in this name. Uh, yeah, because it's great. But when he, when he's feeling like a proper gentleman and we're using his full name, it is Oswald Cobblepug Hagman Romberg, um, hmm. or Ozzy, you know, for 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 everyday wear. <laughs> uh, continuing, I guess, your trend of naming uh, pets after Batman villains. Batman villains, yes. yes. <laughs> 
uh, for anybody who does not remember, my guinea pigs are named Harley and Selena. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and for those not in the loop, Oswald Cobblepot is the penguin. Oswald Cobblepug is a name with a pun in it. I don't know if that's a pun, just like a play on words. <laughs> All right. Uh, yeah, so he, he's been stuck in my head for the past uh, three or four days because we picked him up and he real cute. Uh, also very needy. And so, you know, that's a big change. <laughs> Welcome to having a puppy. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Something I knew what I was getting into when we got him. All right. So we are going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we will begin our discussion on neo-westerns and our two truly excellent homeworks. Not to tip your hand or anything. I loved both of them so much. <laughs> And we are back. Uh, so today we are talking about neo-westerns. Broadly speaking, that's any western set after eh, 1930, 40, 50. We'll get into it. Uh, our two homeworks that we are going to be talking about is uh, the Coen Brothers' No Country for Old Men and uh, David McKenzie's Hell or High Water. But before we get into those homework assignments, we want to talk about what exactly a neo-western is. Uh, Martha, I know you've been doing a, a fair amount of reading and research on this topic, uh, so lay it on us. Yeah, so I was just really interested to know or to see if I could find out like where the term neo-Western came from. Because um, like you said, broadly speaking, a neo-Western is a Western that is set close to when the movie was made, sort of. Not true Which... for No Country for Old Men, obviously. But also, um, but no, really, no, no country is set in, like, what, the 80s? So even then, yeah. it's like, it's definitely not old. You know? Yeah, no, really, it's it's a, a Western, I think, that is set not during the frontier. Right, yeah. Um, but yeah, so I have seen um, Assault on Precinct 13, which came out as, in 1976, as kind of the genesis to this trope. I have also seen... IMDb gives Taylor Sheridan, who wrote Hell or High Water, credit for inventing this term. I could not find anything definitive about, like, this is the first place that this term showed up. Hmm. Um, but in general, if they're riding cars instead of or alongside horses, you're probably looking at a neo-Western. Well, and uh, specifically cars that you don't need to crank in order to start. Because in the Wild Bunch, there was a car, but it was a, Correct. you know, it was the car. Uh, so, so really it's more like if there are cars, uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, the other thing I wanted to look into were, um, what are some of the kind of common themes or tropes or like, um, story character archetypes that show up mm -hmm. in neo-westerns? Cause we have already talked extensively about like, um, what the, like the loss of front, the frontier and the how that kind of contributes to a sense of loss of independence and um you know classic classic and revisionist westerns have their own set of identity 
Um, and one of the things that struck me watching both of these was how bleak they felt compared to some of the other films that we've watched. Um, and really what neo-westerns are about is they're, they're still about the past running into the present, but mm -hmm. in a very different way. Um, where a classic Western is kind of how civilization is encroaching on the wildness of the frontier. Neo-Westerns tend to be more about how tradition is giving way to modern modernity. Yes, and that that is just suffused through No Country for Old Men, which we'll get into. Um, I mean, it's, it's also, I would say, hell or high water. I, yeah, that's true. Uh, Jeff Bridges reminded me a lot of, you know, obviously he and, and the Tommy Lee Jones character are sort of filling the same archetype, but in wildly different ways. Um, but yeah, I, well, I, I, I like that sense of like, it's, it's, it's not civilization versus frontier. It's the modern world versus an older way of life. And it's interesting because I think we get a lot of similar character types in the neo-Westerns as we do in classic Westerns. Like we get the kind of the anti-hero characters, um, you know, the, the lawman, but they feel like they are performing a very different function in a neo-Western. Um, hmm. Like, like in, in Hell or High Water, and we'll, we'll get into this more as we get very, very specifically into our individual homeworks, but like in Hell or High Water, you have our two brothers who are robbing banks, but there's nothing really charming about their anti-hero-ness. Like... I they find are very desperate and sad. Chris Pine is charming, but that's because Chris Pine is charming. Oh, uh, I was gonna say <laughs> right, like, <laughs> uh, and uh, as I was saying off air, I had just watched Three Ten to Yuma, which also features uh, Ben Foster, and watching them back to back, I'm like, yeah, cool. Remind me, never do crime with Ben Foster because <laughs> uh, he is not charming. Um, whereas, like, you're right. Like, if if this were like a Jesse James situation. It'd be a lot more, or even like a Butch Cassidy situation, it'd be a lot more like, yeah, we're having fun with our robberies. I was going to say, no one is having fun in these movies. Right, yes. Um, and with that, I think you should introduce our first one. All right, uh, so we're going to begin this conversation with the uh, 2000, you said six? Yes. Cool. Uh, the 2006 Coen Brothers movie, No Country for Old Men. Uh, this stars Tommy Lee Jones as the aging lawman, Javier Bardem as the uh, psychopathic serial killer uh, Anton Sugar, and Josh Brolin as a dude who finds some money that maybe he shouldn't have found. Um, Coen Brothers shenanigans ensue, by which I mean lots of murder and uh, some kind of funny elements. Uh, also, um... Rounding out the cast is Woody Harrelson and Kelly McDonald. Uh, this she played Carla Jean. Yes, uh, and I love her in everything she's in. And it's rude when she doesn't get uh, listed. Uh, Gonna say and things. Justice for Carla Jean. Right. Yes. Um, this movie fought with There Will Be Blood uh, during that Oscar season. They also were shooting like literally on the same desolate texan plains uh such that when they burned down the big oil rig in uh there will be blood that had to stop filming for no country for old men because of the plumes of smoke and stuff um which is just a fun that's, little fact that's wild that these movies came out the same year came out the same year shot in basically the same location at the same time 
they are obviously very different films, but also very of a piece. Um, it was a good year for film. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, No Country for Old Men is the story of um, Josh Brolin is a guy in the 80s. <laughs> um, he's, he, a, he's a Vietnam vet he's who a, is He lives retired. in a trailer park. Is he retired or is he just unemployed? Either or. He's a vet, so he may just be getting... Um, sure, a pension or something. He's yes. out hunting when he finds a a drug sale gone bad between what looks like a cartel and some Americans. He gets the money from that sale. Um, at the same time, Tommy Lee Jones is the lawman kind of who finds the sale and, and begins following the money. Anton Sugar is hired by the American uh, criminal interests to also reclaim the money. Um, and we sort of have this three-way chase happening. Uh, but it's all based on a Cormac McCarthy book, so it's very ruminative as well as being Coeny. Uh, it's a movie I enjoyed quite a lot and was my obvious go-to example of a Western... E even when we began talking about this topic, I said, hey, maybe I'll sign No Country for Old Men as a Western. And Martha, you said, that is not a Western. Which sort of wow, was the genesis. you call me out. I you did. Call well, me out well, because my own home. <laughs> well, because the I think part of the genesis of this topic was was that sort of discussion. I wanted to have the the discussion of like, okay, so is it a western? Isn't it a western? Uh, and and the idea of the neo western is a somewhat new ish genre. Um, it I feel like it's a lot more popular on TV with things like Sons of Anarchy and whatnot. Um, but, you know, it, it definitely exists in film as well. But these are all things in the past 20 years. Um, and and so we, we have this topic and you have now watched it again after a long time of not seeing it. And what are your takes on it? Are you now pro It's a Western? Oh, yeah. So I, in my own defense, it's been a hot minute since I watched this movie. Right. I did not mean to drag I would, I would even say the first time I watched it, I didn't like it all that much. Hmm. Um. My most of my experience with the Coen brothers is very hit or miss. Like I love Fargo and that's about it. Or, and we've, like, we fought, Fargo. we fought about burn after reading. Like I live, I like the stuff of theirs that is a little bit lighter in tone. So this one didn't work for me as much the first time I saw it. Right. Um, this is one of their heaviest movies. And also like I, have not really understood the neo-western as a concept until like very recently in my life so mm -hmm. thinking about this movie before i rewatch it it was my thoughts were very like well you can't just slap a cowboy hat on something and call it a western uh it turns out you super can <laughs> um, especially when it is a movie like this that shares so much dna with a lot of the other westerns that we have already watched and discussed at length like this movie is absolutely part of the lineage of like unforgiven, the good, the bad and mm -hmm. the ugly, like the searchers. Like this is, I, I feel like <laughs> part of what makes it a Western is the landscape. Um, if you slap a hat, a, a cowboy hat on someone and throw him into, uh, Times Square in the seventies, well, you've just made Midnight Cowboy, which isn't a Western. 
Um, I have I have seen people put Midnight Cowboy on their list of neo westerns. Just uh, okay, fine. If, if you slap, I've never if, seen it, I've never seen it, so I can't weigh in on it. Sure. If you slap but, a cowboy hat on someone and plop him in Boston in 2010, you've not made a neo western. You've you've made a fish out of water story. Um, part of part of what is I think so embedded in cinema's westernness is the wide shot, the the neon panoramic shot of the gorgeous landscapes, um, and just the sense of scale and distance and grandeur of nature that is out west that just doesn't exist, uh, you know, on in, in civilization in the east, however we want to define it. And this this movie absolutely luxuriates in those shots true but i don't think it's just a matter of scenic shots i I, I think it's also what those shots are saying in the context of the movie like i feel very much like frequently westerns use those huge sweeping shots to say very specific things Mm -hmm. um and in in no country for old men just like in hell or high water and i think just like in many neo-westerns a lot of those huge sweeping beautiful vistas are meant to really double down on the isolation of the characters yes uh many of the vista shots are early in the film when it's llewellyn alone um you know tracking an antelope or whatever it was he shot and then dealing with the fact like this drug deal gone bad is in the middle of this scrubland there ain't no one coming other than him um Mm -hmm. etc etc so um, until yeah, other is... people other than him do come and then that's a problem yeah is this a western of course it is <laughs> <laughs> right yeah <laughs> um i mean even at a very just a very basic level it is about a sheriff bringing a criminal to justice which is a very common theme in westerns um or, you know, or not trying to before, bring a criminal to justice. Well, right, or trying to bring a criminal to justice, which I have questions about that, which we will get to. Um, but regardless of whether or not, like, the criminal is an actual bad guy or, like, a wink-wink, nudge-nudge, like, charming guy we're rooting for mm-hmm. or whatever, but, like, this theme of the law versus... Right. Are, are, we t- are, are we trying to take down Anton Sugar, a mad dog who needs to be put down? Or are we trying to take in Jesse James, a fun, a fun bank robbing guy who you kind of root for? Uh, right. Like, you still have that antagonism. Which is, which is sort of the role that Llewellyn is playing in this movie. Like, he has stolen the money, but he is not really pitted as the bad guy. Well, like, the money he stole was some drug dealer's money, so it's like... I don't I, I I feel like at at some point during the film Tommy Lee Jones is trying to find him more for his own protection than like to slash some cuffs cuffs on him, you know. The more we talk about this movie, the more I think that it may just be a secret remake of the good, the bad, and the ugly. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, that's that is not true. Although we don't get that, we don't get the Mexican standoff at the end. We, we don't which get is that. Probably a racist phrase. Now that I'm saying it out loud, I, I think we at don't this get point the triple. It's... We don't get the triple standoff at the end. That phrase I think has been grandfathered in, uh, mostly because there's no alternative phrase for it, to my knowledge, um, or at least not one that's permeated culture. Um, 
But the, the the difference here is that, as you said during our last episode where we talked about the good, the bad, and the ugly, those titles could kind of apply to any one of the people. This movie has a sheriff, a, 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 a kind of uh, screw-up, and a sociopath. <laughs> like, like yeah. <laughs> there is no question who the bad is in this movie. True. Um, so, I have a question for you. Yeah. Why do you think we don't get a big showdown at the end? Like, well, so... it, it was really bothering me that Josh... Spoilers for a movie that's over 10 years old. And also was um, it... your homework that you should have already watched. Yes. <laughs> um, it was really bothering me that Josh Brolin dies off screen. Hmm. So, I have not read the book, but this is based on a book by Cormac McCarthy, who... One reason why I was instantly like, obviously it's a Western, is because Cormac McCarthy's a guy who writes Westerns. Um, even his non-Western so, stuff, like The Road. Yeah, The Road is a Western. The Road is a Western. Oh, <laughs> we're, gonna do, we're gonna do post-apocalyptic Westerns as a future topic. <laughs> well, yeah. yeah I've already got be... my homework for it picked out. Is it Fury Road? No, although, shoot, that'd be a good one. It's a Western. <laughs> <laughs> um... As your Everything husband, as Western. your husband Bill, as your husband Bill said on Twitter, "Welcome to your podcast. Did you do your homestead? Did you do your homestead? <laughs> Which is so good. Uh, anyway, sorry. Continue. Uh, so, so, um, uh, so first off, obviously, authors can write outside genres that they're famous for. Uh, Cormac McCarthy writes westerns. He could write something that's not a western. He doesn't. Uh, even his post post apocalyptic <laughs> stuff is a western. Um, second off, having not read it, I don't know how closely this movie hews to his work, and also obviously adaptations can change things. But it feels very much um, in the Cormac McCarthy vein to kill Llewellyn off screen in the book, and it feels very Cohen-y to really like that idea and to run with it. Um, so on the one hand, take everything I'm saying with a big old asterisk, because I'm basically talking out of my butt, but it feels like it's a great confluence of an author and directors with similar enough sensibilities. Like, one reason they did a great adaptation of this is they have similar enough sensibilities, um, and really liking that idea of we have this guy who we are, we're, we're presenting as the main character, like, you know, Anton Chigurh's the bad guy, and then we have Tommy Lee Jones and Llewellyn as, like, your two kind of protagonists, uh, with the, the audience really sympathetic to Llewellyn, and then killing him off screen and making it, like, really anticlimactic feels like a rug pull that everyone involved in the making of this is, like, super into. Um, and honestly, I'm into it, too. Uh, but I also understand that it's a your mileage may vary kind of situation. It was just... I, so I did not have high hopes for Llewellyn making it out of this whole situation alive. <laughs> um, but we had already seen, I don't know, it felt like it felt like the unceremonious kill was a tool in Anton Sugar's belt that I was kind of weirdly disappointed and I don't know, I I thought it was weird that we had seen so many unceremonious murders up to this point but then we don't see the one that is arguably the most emotionally impactful of the film but isn't that maybe the point that we're, we're we see sugar kill everyone else 
but we don't see him kill kill Llewellyn. When you, and... s- when you say when you say that's the point, what point? Um, like to to underscore the not the specialness, but you know, like it's 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 the inverse of the like. Oh, we heard this guy is so bad. He killed fifty guys. Instead, we see him kill a bunch of people for literally no reason in some cases and in other reasons because they're trying to kill him um like we the audience are like he is a demonic force of death of death and so when we just roll up to the the motel with the police already there and all the rest of it it's like oh yeah okay i know what happened it it sort of like cements that followed immediately by him killing uh, poor uh, Carla Jean. Followed immediately Justice by for Carla Jean. <laughs> followed immediately by him getting hit by a car in a free car accident and like limping away with like a boy's shirt as his sling. It's just like it's 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 a it's it's one of those shaggy. It's it's part of the shagginess of a story like this that I I like a lot and I think that the Coens do a lot of. See, I think it's the opposite of that. It felt like suddenly they were trying... It felt like they skipped... Because I I can almost see it... Like, their visual tone is so clear. I can see it in my head. Which makes it feel like they just skipped that scene. Hmm. And maybe they were confident enough that they're like, yeah, the audience will see it in their head. So, you know... I don't know. It feels disrespectful. I that that's fair, and I I do think it's a your mileage may vary situation. So, uh, agree to disagree. Yeah, I guess. Um, why does Tommy Lee Jones's sheriff simply stop chasing Anton? I think he he knows he's out of his league right like that's i think that's kind of the point of so what like part of as as you said earlier part of what makes this a neo western is that it's the fight between civil like modernity and old ways of life and tommy lee jones is that character um and he brings up in multiple scenes that he feels like he's sort of getting too old for this job not just because he's getting too old but because there's the running theme of like society is kind of crumbling in a way um crimes that you never used to be able to even envision are now just happening and he doesn't want to you know he's he's ready to retire because it's all getting to be too much for him and yeah, Shigeru, and I, I, think I is... get all of that it just it did not seem consistent to his character that we i i think if he was 20 that he would simply retire i think if he was 20 years younger he would have kept chasing it but so much of of the various scenes earlier on where he's talking about that like to who is it his brother um unclear yeah the the dude with, with the coffee um and then also the dream at the very end uh, I think all of it is supposed to sort of like point to the idea that if he were a younger man, he might keep chasing this down. But him being who he is at the age he is and having seen what he's seen and having chased as far as he has, he's at the point where he's like, 
I gotta wash my hands of this, otherwise it's gonna kill me. And I don't want to die. Unlike, perhaps, if you're ready for a segue, Jeff Bridges. <laughs> um, if you're not ready for a segue, that's cool. We'll keep talking about No Country. I, yeah, I had a couple more things I wanted to say. Yeah, cool. Um, on the topic of Carla Jean. Mm. Uh, so one thing that I think we have discussed frequently in these episodes is how masculine these movies and these stories tend to be and how when women show up if women show up um they are not the strongest of characters and i was fully prepared to dismiss carla jean at the beginning of this movie um she owns i love her and i'm really mad at the ending that she got <laughs> although it also felt her her refusal to play Sh uh, Sugar's game was just like another example of how much she rules. Yes, because um, she's the only character who doesn't play his game. I think. Uh, well, do we see him do it with anyone else other than the gas station guy? I think we just see the gas station guy, but also like uh, um, Llewellyn um, plays his game simply by you know. It's a different kind of game he's playing with him, but it's still definitely like his game, you know? But yeah, he's like, call it. And she's like, no, take responsibility for your own stuff. Right. Um, which I, I mean, she knew that she knew that this meant that she was going to die. And she was still like, I'm not going to absolve you. Right. If you're going to kill me, you're going to kill me. But that's on you. That's not on fate or chance or me. Which was such a cutting thing to say to a character whose whole deal in the movie has been like, I follow my word. I like follow my assignment. And it's like what your idea of keeping your word is, is twisted and horrible. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, and then to have this character come out and be have this character who in most Western stories would be like the weak um like the weak one that needs taken care of to have her be like, no, if you're going to kill me, then do it. Don't like, I'm not going to play this game with you. Yeah. Yeah. Um, um, and, and in a way he gets karmic, uh, retribution because right after killing her, he gets in a car accident. Uh, true. <laughs> so I, and that's, I kind of view that as like the, the karmic justice of, uh, that was an unjust act that he did, even though he's keeping his word like she was nobody, you know, um, uh, to him. Uh, and again, as, yeah, the as... whole reason, the whole reason he's there is because he told her dead husband that if if he didn't pony up the money that she doesn't have anymore, that he was going to kill her. And it's like, you right. have no reason you, you have the money and you've also killed the husband. So you're literally um, even he? if he if he even if he doesn't, he's already killed the husband. Um, yeah uh Llewellyn, so... i did i did lose track of where the suitcase was right because it's because it's a straight MacGuffin. <laughs> like it does not matter <laughs> um and and uh uh speaking of carla jean she is played by the amazing Ke uh, kelly mcdonald mentioned before but like put her in more movies she's great um on that note i am more than happy to segue into hell or high water all right uh so Speaking of old sheriffs with a death wish, <laughs> Jeff Bridges. Uh, so, yeah, Martha, you assigned Hell or High Water. Lay it on us. 
I did. So Hell or High Water is a 2016 movie written by Taylor Sheridan, which will matter in just a moment, and directed by uh, David McKenzie. It stars Chris Pine as Toby, Ben Foster as his brother Tanner, Jeff Bridges as the Ranger Marcus Hamilton, Gil Birmingham as his partner Alberto Parker, uh, Dale Dickey as Elsie, uh, Toby's ex-wife, um, and then a bunch of other people who show up in bit parts. Taylor Sheridan's a cowboy. As a cowboy, yes. Uh, so the reason I point out Taylor Sheridan as the writer is because he has written three films. Well, first he is, IMDb credits him as coming up with the phrase for neo-Western, and that's because the dude cannot stop writing them. Hmm. Um, he wrote Sicario. He which, wrote Wind which River. is great and is definitely a neo-Western. Yes, he wrote Wind River, and most recently he wrote, and I believe directed, uh, Those Who Wish Me Dead a neo-western starring angelina jolie as a firefighter i did not realize that was a neo-western until right now when you said that and i'm on his wiki page yes hmm, well i guess i'm double adding this to my watch list nicholas holton aiden gillen all right done i don't know that it's good just i'll i'll take that to prepare you i'll, I'll take that on um, i'll take that under advisement I, I also believe that Taylor Sheridan is getting more and more Republican with every movie that he writes. Um, but anyway, right now we are talking about Hell or High Water, which is about Toby and Tanner, who are brothers whose family ranch, which has had oil just discovered on it, uh, is about to get repossessed by the bank um, because their mother took out a reverse, a predatory reverse mortgage on it. And they basically have until the end of the week to pay it or it gets repossessed by the bank and they don't get the benefits of the oil uh, that got discovered on it. And also because uh, this is set in like 2010, so it's like in the height of the recession. Yes. Um, so they are going to pay it off by robbing branches of the bank that has the reverse mortgage <laughs> that is holding on their farm. And then they're yeah, and then they're going to give the bank the, its own money back. I love it so much. Oh, yes. No. And then, yeah, the end of this has Chris Pine putting the ranch in trust that is being held by the same bank. Yes. Yes. Uh, Jeff Bridges plays the ranger who is called in to help uh, put a stop to all of the crime. Uh, Gil Birmingham plays his wonderful partner, who I loved very, very much. His his who... long suffering partner because he is partnered with Jeff Bridges. Yes. Um. But yeah, this this one has many, many shootouts. Um, at one point, Toby and Tanner launder the money through a Native American owned casino. Um, things end poorly for many of these characters. Uh, and at the end, uh, Toby and Ranger Hamilton have a sit down and a beer on the outdoor porch where they both talk in sort of veiled language about how um, Marcus knows what he has done. And Toby's like, yeah, well, did it for my kids. Yep. So <laughs> um, I love this movie. I'm so glad you assigned it. It had been on my watch list for literally years. Never got around to it. Uh, and when you assigned it, I was like, heck yeah, I get to watch this. Uh, yeah, and so I Chris loved Pine... it too so much. 
Yeah, Chris Pine is my forever Hollywood husband. He's the best Chris. Um, he is my best Chris. I, I think he's canonically the best Chris. Evans is a close second. I was going to say, there is some debate over whether it's him or Chris Evans because Chris Evans does more public, like, good works. And yeah. Chris Pine, I think, is mostly just embarrassed that he's famous. Right, which I think is what pushes him over the top to be best Chris. It truly like i don't know what he does in his private life and that's awesome right like and i honestly i don't care <laughs> yes uh as long as it's not something horrific but moving on um yes whereas uh ben foster his brother is a amazing b uh while we were watching the trailer before this uh because i was trying to see if marn was interested she watched it she enjoyed it a lot um Good. halfway through i'm like that guy looks a lot like ben foster but maybe he isn't because, uh, like, the, the mustache beard situation he was rocking uh, and, like, with the, the sunglasses, it's, like, half the time it looks like Ben Foster. Half the time he doesn't. And then watching the movie, it's like, that's totally Ben Foster. Remind me to never do crime with him because it will end badly because he's a maniac. <laughs> yeah, I believe Ben Foster was also in one of my other favorite movies that came out in the last couple of years, Leave No Trace. Mm, which I haven't seen that. Was, yeah, he and his he plays a man with a teenage daughter. The two of them live completely off the grid. Oh, I have heard of this. He, I assume he's a maniac in that movie. He's not. He is a traumatized um, army vet. Hmm. Uh, but anyway, hell or high water. Um, so this one is, again, watching this was what made me think about the differences in tone between this and some of the movies that we've watched previously, because even something like the wild bunch, which has a melancholic undertone, like when the crimes are happening, there is a sense of like glee mm -hmm. from the criminals. And in this one, again, no one is having fun. Well, Ben Foster is maybe having ben, some fun. Ben Foster's having fun and he should not be having fun. <laughs> I was going to say he's having fun in a scary way. Yes. Like, he has fun, and Chris Pine is like, whoa, dude. Ben, ben <laughs> Foster know, maybe don't die. robs a bank well, like, on his own while Chris Pine is having lunch because Ben Foster got antsy and just wanted to go rob a bank. The way that that scene is filmed was so I, good. Every time, like, like it was behind the shoulder, you see the door of the bank, and I kept expecting to see him walk through the door, and he never did. And then we just cut to him being inside the bank robbing, and I'm like, oh my god, what just happened? Yeah. Um, but yeah, so anytime someone gets shot in this movie, it is brutal. Like you, I, I very like physically reacted anytime someone like took a gunshot. Hashtag justice for Alberto. Alberto, that was, that was. That was, that was traumatic. And the way Jeff Bridges played it underlined. Oh, yeah. The trauma. Like, I thought for sure that Bridges was, his character was going to have a heart attack some, at some point during, like, probably right after he shot Ben Foster. But, like, I, I, I did not think he was making it down off that, that ridge. Because uh, he was it, playing it so riled up. It also really shows you the difference in what these movies, what, what the older westerns are glorifying versus what the neo-westerns, I think, are idealizing because ben Fo like ben foster as tanner is clearly like when he goes down in his last shootout like that's a blaze of glory that i think he was almost kind of gunning for if excuse you know yeah. forgive my phrasing 
Um, now I'll, I'll give you I'll give you points for that great pun. Um, but it's but it's suicidal rather than like and history will remember my name. Right. He's like I I'm a screw up. I've always been a screw up. I can help my my brother and his kids. Uh, I'm gonna go down like a mad like the mad dog that I kind of am and that I kind of know I am. Yeah, like there are no heroics in these movies. There are there aren't even really any heroes. There are just people who are trying to do good things and people who are either doing bad things because they have no choice or because they are like bad, horrible people. Right. Yeah. What did you think of Jeff Bridges uh, being literally the worst to Alberto? Uh, just like constant racist <laughs> jokes, yada yada yada. Um, I thought it was maybe a little bit of the like. I didn't think we were supposed to love it. I think we're supposed to be on Alberto's side. Oh, I think really? Was... Really? You you didn't think we were supposed to love the constant jokes about Alberto's uh, well, I just uh, mean, Comanche I don't heritage? Think we were supposed to. I don't think we as an audience were supposed to feel affectionately. Like I don't think we were supposed to go, oh, that guy. I think we were supposed to be uncomfortable yes. with it. Yes. Well, and and I I also think it was um, going back to the the ongoing theme of neo westerns, the conflict of like an old way of doing things versus modernity. I think it was supposed to underscore the fact that Bridges is like he's a good old boy from the olden days, where mm -hmm. that was just what you did. You ribbed everyone on everything, and everyone just took it. And if you happen to be Comanche or Mexican or a woman or whatever, sucks to be you. You're getting it worse than anyone else. Um, and Bridges never, he got like powerful enough or seniority enough, like high rank enough th uh, before things changed that mm -hmm. no one has been able, like no one's called him out on it. Cause you know, now, now he's the, he's the chief or whatever. Um, mm -hmm. Whereas everyone else is like, you know, there's the there's the last scene where he goes in the office and he's been replaced by uh, uh, the female ranger who's kind of like, yeah, here's some paperwork. You're retired. You can't do anything. We're closing this case. Goodbye. I yeah. have I have your desk, <laughs> um, which was a nice little like the times they are a changing kind of uh, vibe. Yes. Um, yeah, that definitely read to me as like he thinks he's being funny because 10 20 years ago that was funny right locker room humor <laughs> as it were yeah. um but uh it, it's it, it was a nice <laughs> it was it was a nice sort of we're seeing both sides of that like old way of life modernity thing where like usually the old way of life is idealized and bridges is a good ranger like he does know what's like he's predicting what the boys are going to do next in terms of their robbery he's you know he's one step ahead of them kind of in a way and he's mm -hmm. able to take that final shot to take out uh ben foster so in a way he's sort of like he's the successful cop but also that old way of doing things has a lot of negative things going along with it too and he mm -hmm. also exemplifies those so his retirement and all the rest of it is both a good and a bad thing, you know? Mm-hmm. What did you think uh, of how... Oh, yes. um, I thought this movie was very political in the ways that there were so many shots of, you know, 
foreclosure signs or oh, yeah. oil company signs. Like it was definitely uh, came out in 16, shot in 15 and set in maybe 9, 10. Um, and it felt like it and it felt very much like a. Even though the boys are doing some robbery, we're kind of supposed to root for them because F the banks. Oh, yeah, I think we were. I think we were definitely supposed to root for them. I mean, even their lawyer was like. Oh, yeah, like... So if you were going to ask me how to launder this money... Right. Like, obviously you got this money from uh, from gambling. If, however, instead you got it from robbing banks, here are some things you should be aware of. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it is, it is definitely political. Um, it feels a little bit more libertarian than, like... Proper lefty. Yeah, that checks out, though, and I feel like any Western is probably going to have a libertarian strain. Oh, for sure. There's or... definitely definitely a measure of we can take care of ourselves better than, like, the bosses can. But even then, like, even a... You could do, like, a Magnificent Seven that's a, a proper lefty thing because it's about a community coming together. And even then, you could read a libertarian ethos into it just because I think Westerns, by their nature, encourage libertarian readings because the great expanse, the the sort of if you're out on your homestead or whatever, you have to be able to take care of yourself and can't always rely on, on other people. We probably just said the same thing in two different ways, so. Yeah, I think so. Uh, Elsie is nowhere near as compelling of a character as Carla Jean. Um, you said Elsie, and I just thought, I assume that's Chris Pine's ex-wife, but I could not yeah. have told you her name. She mostly just shows up to be mean, which I'm I'm sure she has a right to be. I'm not asking her to be nicer to Chris Pine, who you get the feeling was maybe not the best husband. Mm -hmm. But it would have been nice to get to know her as a person rather than just the ex-wife hands down the best female character in the movie was the waitress at the t-bone steak restaurant she was great she stole the scene and um, the movie <laughs> yes you are correct um see if i can find her possibly margaret bowman it's not Marin Ireland. That's someone much younger. So no, um, there was like there are multiple women credited in this with names, and I'm like I don't know who any of these people are. Mm -hmm. um, Bank tellers, I think. Then oh, I think it's Katie Mixon as Jenny Ann. Again, I could not tell you the name of the of the T Bone Steak woman. But yeah, so she she sits down, she tries to get Chris Pine to get a job at her diner, and then later she won't narc on them. Because... Oh, I'm, I'm talking about the other woman. I'm talking about the old woman at the T-Bone Steak Place with um, uh, oh, Jeff Bridges and, uh, okay. and uh, Alberto. When she's like, we only what? have steak, so what side do you want? Yeah, or what, what, what don't you want? <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yeah, yeah, the, the other diner uh, was was fun, and that's during the scene we were talking about when Ben Foster robbed a bank on his own. <laughs> like a maniac. This, 
So this movie had a very, obviously it had a very different ending than No Country for Old Men, because this ends with the cop and the robber uh, having a heart-to-heart over some Lone Stars, um, whereas No Country for Old Men actively does not. But even then, it felt to me like what Jeff Bridges was sort of saying. It it felt similar to what Tommy Lee Jones was saying. Um, the two characters were very different, but also just... By being old, about to retire cops, ruminating on life and all the rest of it, there was a lot of resonance between the two of them. Oh, yeah, I agree. The difference, I think, is that I don't think Jeff Bridges would have been upset if he had died in battle. Oh, no, he absolutely would have kept hunting down Anton Sugar and would have, like, been excited to go out in a blaze of glory versus him. Mm-hmm. Where it's like Tommy Lee Jones has a wife and a horse, or I guess his wife has a horse, uh, and you know a farm and stuff. Something to look forward to. Yeah. Which is in short supply in these movies. Yeah, actually, I don't even know if he does have a lot to look forward to. It's interesting. Both both characters on facing retirement, you get the sense that they're gonna be that they're gonna be at a loss. I had a I had the real sense that like. Bridges will be dead two years after he's retired uh, just because he's the kind of guy who lives for his job has literally nothing else. And, you know, like there's there's all the scenes where like he's he's sleeping on the bench outside or he's like, you know, he goes for the walk at night in the poncho or whatever. Um, And he, he really seems like the kind of guy who has nothing else in his life. When there's no job around, he's either going to keep kicking around the office until they kick him out, which is literally what he's doing. Um, mm-hmm. Or he's just going to. You know, he's he's going to have a heart attack or something. Eight months after he retires, because he's just going to be bored and his body's just going to give up. Um, Tommy Lee Jones at least has his wife and all the rest of it, but he also seems like the kind of guy who it's like. You, you don't see either of them like, f- you know, sitting in a boat fishing. I could see Tommy Lee Jones sitting in a boat fishing. I could see him riding his horse around all the time, like, and, and, and having a good time. Yeah. Any other thoughts? Well, I was, I was going to ask anything else, <laughs> anything else you want to be talking about on this or this feel like a pretty good um, place to wrap up. Only that just because masculinity has had such a strong thread in all of our episodes, I kind of wish we had also watched Brokeback Mountain for mm. this. I've never seen Brokeback Mountain. Peter. Well, and um, actually, uh, currently, Martin and I have a uh, murder-suicide pact of Crouching Tiger and Sense and Sensibility. Um, Ang-, Ang Lee's uh, a little Ang-, Ang Lee double feature. Uh, once that happens, I'm sure I'll just, like, segue into Brokeback Mountain. It's great. <laughs> All right done uh i'm i'm very sad that i was a uh a male boy in the year 2004 or whenever that came out and <laughs> and uh spoiler not great for lgbt relationships with uh, male boys in 2004 well specifically a young boy because i feel yes. like well, i feel like if you'd been older there would have been less of a I don't want to watch that. But even, I mean, like, even culturally, it was. 
you know, we our, our society still has a long way to go, but we have also, as a general culture, come a long way since 2004. But also definitely, yes, I mean, definitely also for high school boys. For, it was also nominated for Best Picture. Sure. So. Yeah. Oh, sure. I know what question we should close on. Speaking of all of these critically acclaimed Best Picture nominees. Mm. One of the questions that we brought up in our very first episode doing this and then sidelined until later in our series. We have read a lot of material that claims that the Western is dead. I'm so glad you brought this up. I had it on my document of things to bring up on the last episode and then forgot to mention it. <laughs> and truly, my conclusion after all of this is that it is not that the Western is dead. It's that the Western, like every other film genre, evolves to accommodate the time period and the artists working with it. And, and in fact, I think that because we have seen the Western evolve and people continue to make them to great acclaim that we can say confidently that the Western is not dead. I'm going to go one step further, which yes. is that in addition to not being dead, much like the Western in its heyday was obviously a big screen thing, but also was a small screen thing. You have your bonanzas and your stagecoach and all the rest of it. I think the Western is very much thriving in, especially neo-Westerns, on a lot of prestige TV, or FX TV. Um, Sons of Anarchy, Yellowstone, all these sorts of things that, like... Another um, Taylor Sheridan product, FYI. Right, actually, both of those are Taylor Sheridan products. <laughs> so this true. might all be on his back, but, like, I, I feel like there are... E even Firefly, you know, back, back in 2001... Um, is like a sci-fi Western. I feel like Western DNA is so coded into pop culture um, that, A, it will never die because it is, at this point, it will just, you know, it will live forever if only as moments and other things. But even on its own, it might not be having its glory day on screen, or on, on the big screen, but it is certainly alive and well on the small screen. Well, and did you see... Um, Netflix's new release coming out this fall. Go on. Uh, it is called The Harder They Fall. Oh my god, yes. Uh, <laughs> my sexuality and is Idris stars... Elba in a duster. <laughs> yes, it stars Idris Elba, it stars Regina King, it stars Zazie Beats, it yes. stars... Jonathan Major, I think. Yes, yes, it does. Stanfield. Yes, it does. Um, All these people in dusters. Yes, please. Yes. Yes. So it is described as a new school Western. This is a traditionally set Western. Um, and it opens with Regina King stopping and holding up a train in order to break Idris Elba out of a little, like, prison closet. Yes. Um... It's, yes, it's uh, Rufus Bl Rufus Buck, played by Idris Elba, is being released from prison so that he can round, oh, is being released from prison, so Jonathan Majors is an outlaw who rounds up his old gang to track Rufus down and seek revenge on him. One, and so we have 
Regina King and Idris Black versus Idris Jonathan Majors and Zazie Beats. Yeah. Uh, and apparently one of them is based on Nat Love, a uh, African-American cowboy and former slave um, who earned was one of multiple people with the nickname Deadwood Dick. Um, because, you know, everything always ties back to Deadwood when it comes to Westerns. But yeah, I mean, Quentin Tarantino can't stop. <laughs> can't stop, <laughs> that's, won't stop. That's true. He's made a bunch of... Cla- like, honest, like, Django Unchained, kind of a Western. Hateful Eight, obviously a Western. I was gonna say, I don't... I think Django Unchained is a pretty straightforward Western, isn't it? I would honestly even say that Inglorious Bastards might be a Western. No. Can you make I don't World think War II can... Western? No. Okay. That's you I know think what? A war movie is a different thing. <laughs> That's fair. I don't, I don't think you get to just call something a western. <laughs> um, K- but Kill Bill, eight. definitely a western. Hate well. <laughs> no, Kill Bill's hate, not a western. No, Kill Bill's more of like a. Don't, don't even indulge movie. me on that nonsense. Um, but Hateful Eight for sure. Django yeah. Unchained for sure. Django Unchained, it's there in the title. Hateful Eight, it's like, Hateful Eight has Ennio Morricone doing the soundtrack. So, yes. <laughs> right. Tarantino cannot be stopped. Um. Yeah. Yeah. So I just wanted to close on that because I think that calling the Western dead is absurd and it just has changed like every film genre in history. Yes. Um, we might not have the John Waynes anymore, but that's fine. We have something else instead, namely Idris Elba in a duster. I'm so excited. <laughs> oh, my God. I saw that trailer, and then I watched it three more times. <laughs> uh, well, that, that seems like a perfect note to end on. Uh, this is also the end of our Western month, but it is certainly not the end of Western-themed episodes we will have because i currently have a document with like eight other possible episodes and we might be changing we might be changing the title of this podcast to did you do your homestead um thanks bill (laughs) however uh uh, our next three episodes we are continuing the idea of a theme month but um martha and i are indescribably excited for a film coming out in a month namely David Lowry's The Green Knight, starring Dev Patel. And because of that, we will be doing three episodes in a row about Arthurian legends. Um, our next episode is well, looking... About... About Arthur? King Arthur. Yeah, oh, sure, great, great, yeah. About <laughs> King Arthur. Um, Look, our... accuracy in all things, obviously. <laughs> right. Uh, our next episode is the historical Arthur. This is the, we're playing it straight. Uh, maybe we're fighting some Saxons or something. We'll get into it. So for our homework for next episode, Martha is assigning the 2004 Antoine Fuqua film King Arthur, starring Clive Owen, uh, Keira Knightley, and Ian Griffith. I probably mispronounced his name because it's super Welsh, uh, which works for a King Arthur story. I am assigning the 1995 Bernard Cornwell book, The Winter King. Now, this is the first book in a fantasy trilogy uh, that is all about the, you know, a historical take on Arthur. I have not read it yet, but 
based on on you know looking around and and reading about it it seems like it's going to fit the bill really well and it's going to deal with some cool ideas such as paganism versus christianity uh so those are our two homework assignments for next week you can follow us on everywhere that's twitter and instagram at dydyh podcast you can find us on Facebook by searching for Did You Do Your Homework? And you can find us on any of the podcatchers, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play, what have you, Spotify. Uh, please like and follow us. Uh, give us a good review. Uh, subscribe, whatever it is you do on your various podcatcher. And tell your friends. As always, that is a homework assignment. Uh, you can email us at show at homeworkpodcast.com. And you can follow me at Pico3000, that's P-I-K-O-3000, where I'm talking politics and pop culture. Uh, and also, pictures of my pug. He's very photogenic. Uh, Martha, where can people find you, and what else are you plugging? Uh, first of all, I demand that you post more dog photos. I cannot believe that dog has been in your house for over a week. No, and... he's been in my house for three days. Well, Okay. Uh, but anyway, you can follow me in all the places at Magical Martha, including um, uh, Letterboxd, where I frequently rank uh, movies that I watch for various stuff. I have a compilation list of all of the movies that I've watched for the other podcast that I do with Marin, Pete's wife, called Love Ya, where we watch a teen movie or an adult rom-com and then pick it apart our most recent episode was on a movie <laughs> called Modern Persuasion, <laughs> which certainly was a movie that I watched. Uh, that was a uh, very fun episode because you both are just like, oh, my God. Um, uh, and our, I, our I, next, sorry, oh, I, sorry, I did not realize. It was, so this movie was based on Jane Austen's Persuasion. I did not realize it was called Modern Persuasion, which is maybe the laziest naming of a movie I've ever heard of. And it reminded me of the Mitch Hedberg sketch of what should we call our hotel? Tree. No. Double tree. F yeah. Done. <laughs> I was holding out for quadruple tree. <laughs> we were halfway there. Um, and then our next episode is our 50th episode. So instead of watching and discussing a specific movie, uh, we will be doing a little retrospective where we build a top 10 list because you know how much I love lists. Uh, between the two of us of our favorite films that we've watched so far. Um, I haven't written my newsletter in a while, but if you want to read the stuff I have written, you can find that at tinyletter.com backslash Magical Martha. Um, I think that's everything. All right. I do most stuff. I do most stuff on Instagram right now. Sure. Yeah. It makes my heart hurt less than Twitter does. <laughs> Uh, my, my Instagram is, I think, I think it's private. My Twitter is public because that's how I, uh, you know, set my bubbles. So that is a good place to end. We will talk to you all in two weeks as we begin our dive into uh, the legends and fact. No, it's all made up of King Arthur. Uh, so until then, class dismissed. <laughs>
instead of our regular outro music, you should play like 15 seconds of the Beth Patterson song, Come Hell or High Water. I will leave that note right now. Beth Because Patterson. it is a little bit what a Western pop song would sound like. And it has also been stuck in my head for a long time. <laughs> this dog is so small, Peter. He, I cannot express how he tiny is he is. So he small. is impossibly small. <laughs>